I became involved in the investigation of Sandra Bland because previously I had spent about 18 years doing cases for the NAACP where families just didn't know what to do when they'd had a death in custody. I had opportunity to look at what had and had not been done and also the circumstances of death. The history of this jail, astonishing. Very important about that case were the circumstances leading up to it. The law enforcement officer, in my opinion, just immediately went to a level 10 of reaction. And I found extensive bruising on the back of Miss Bland. Deep knee into the back, very painful, bilateral to the bone. And that was very important in establishing that this was an altercation, a very harsh altercation prior to her being left alone over a weekend in a jail cell with information not even being passed to the jailers that were on the weekend staff. So there are so many issues that needed to be looked at for that case. Hello, ma'am. Well, it takes higher patrol. The reason for your stop is you didn't fail. You failed to signal the lane change. You got your driver's license insurance with you? Can you give me a few minutes, all right? You okay? I'm waiting on you. you this is your job. I'm waiting on you. What do you want me to do? Oh, you seem very irritated. I am. I, I really am. I was getting out of your way. You were speeding up, tailing me. So I move over, and you stop me. So, yeah, I am a little irritated, but yeah. that doesn't stop you from giving me a ticket. So. You asked me what's wrong, and I told you. Okay. So now I'm done, yeah. Okay. You mind putting out your cigarette, please, if you mind? I'm in my car. Why do I have to put out my cigarette? Well, you can step on out now. I don't have to step out of my car. Step out of the car. Step no, out of the car. Have, no, you don't have the right. Step not, out of the car. You do not have the right to do that. I do have the right. Now step out or I will remove you. I refuse to talk to you other than to identify myself. Step out or I will remove you. I am getting removed for a failure. Step out or I will remove you. I'm giving you a lawful order. Get out of the car now or I'm going to remove you. And I'm calling my I'm going to yank you out of here. Okay, you're going to yank me out of my car? Get out. Okay. All right. 
Come over here. Y'all are interested. Come over here now. You, you feeling good about this? Stand right here. Turn around now. Why can't you tell I'm me I'm giving you a law order. I will tell you. Why am I being arrested? Turn why around. Why you tell me that part? I'm giving you a law order. Turn around. Why will you not tell you me what's not going on? I'm not complying because you just pulled me out of my car. Turn around. Are you f***ing kidding me? This is some bull****. Because you know this is straight bull****. You full of Full of straight If you would have just listened. I was trying to sign the Ticket. Whatever. Stop moving. Are you serious? Stop moving. Oh, I can't wait. We gonna You want me to sit down now? No. Or you gonna drop? You gonna throw me to the floor? That'll make you feel better about yourself. Knock it off. That'll make you feel real good, won't it? <laughs> My God, they they must want. You were getting a warning until now. You're going to jail. No, I'm getting for what? You can come for read. What? Come read right. I'm getting a warning for what? Stay right here. For what? Well, you stay just right pointed here. me over there. I said stay right Get here. Your Right here. You I got a control. She's in handcuffs. What a f***. What a You better break my f***ing wrist. Stop moving. I'm standing still. You keep moving me, goddammit. Stay right there. Don't touch me. Come right right over here. This right here says a warning. You started creating the problem. You asked me what was wrong. Do you have I'm trying to tell you. Person that's you're, you're about to break my wrist. Can you stop? stop? You are stop. stop now. Stop it. You are getting around. When you pull away from me, you're resisting arrest. You're a real man now. You just slam me, knock my head in the ground. I got epilepsy, you mother. Good. Good. I'm Dr. Roger Mitchell, Jr., a forensic pathologist. And I'm Jay Aronson, a historian and human rights practitioner. And on this episode of Official Ignorance, the Death and Custody podcast, we talk to Dr. Joy Carter, the first black chief medical examiner in the United States. Welcome to Official Ignorance, the Death and Custody podcast, hosted by Dr. Roger Mitchell, Jr. and Professor Jay Aronson. You are now listening to the sounds of official ignorance. We're talking about medical examiners and medical examiners as it relates to death in custody. And so I really wanted to begin with you introducing yourself to the listeners and what you want them to know about you. Well, thank you so much. If I can call you Dr. Roger, I'm grateful for our friendship over a number of years and I appreciate you having this conversation. It's been one of my interests for decades. What I'd like the audience to know is that I have been a forensic pathologist for over 40 years. It's been the love of my life. It's my calling from God. And I was introduced to forensic pathology as a teenager. And I was trained by the late Dr. Joe Davis who wanted to have diversity in death investigation, and he wanted to train an African-American physician. So I've come up with all the ones that are in the books that were alive and sharing a wealth of information back in the 70s and 80s, and um, was very uh, blessed to be the first Black chief medical examiner in this country, and to make way, to make sure that young folk like you were coming up 
and barreling through and really opening up death investigation to the public, particularly people who are uh, underserved and have less access to medical care and forgotten about by the legal system. No, outstanding. You know, you, you, you mentioned that you were one of the first or was the first black board certified forensic pathologist to serve as a chief medical examiner in the United States. And, and, and like, like you said, you spent much of your career blazing a trail uh, for forensic pathologists like me to follow you, knowing you since I was a medical student, um, looking at these issues of violence and, and death in custody. Tell us how police violence and death in custody has shown up for you in your career? Oh, my goodness. Um, you know, when I became a forensic pathologist, uh, I first served in the military. And so I, I see firsthand as one of the rare black officers in the United States Air Force, how many black and brown men and women are the first boots on the ground, the first boots in the area, and how we're overrepresented even in the military in deaths. And then um, I went to Washington, D.C. as the chief medical examiner shortly after uh, Rafael Edmond had been removed as a big drug kingpin in D.C. and to see how many of our young people were dying in the streets fighting for the right to sell drugs. Mm -hmm. um, you see the relationship of poverty, education, and income to drugs in our nation's capital. The chocolate city as you were, you know, back, back in the day. Yeah. And um, becoming the chief medical examiner in D.C., I began to get calls from all over the country um, where cities had deaths in custody or um, police had issues. So what I was seeing was how widely spread it was, how little it was being talked about. And the fact that because there weren't other black chief medical examiners, um, they didn't have a place at the table. So you couldn't say it. So I made it my mandate to speak out about what was going on. Um, while I was in DC, I started counting the number of prisoners in this country, the population. I remember when it broke 2 million and quickly rose from that point on to see the misrepresentation and then to learn after the fact, well after the fact, that we are having deaths in custody that weren't reported, weren't always thoroughly investigated, and weren't always thoroughly examined the way I was taught to examine a decedent. Wow. Um, so, you know, that that time that you were in D.C. and um, and and really you went from D.C. And, and then you spent some time in Houston, um, really two big cities uh, with issues of interaction between its citizenry and law enforcement. How has the work that you've done in death and custody shaped your perspective on the criminal legal system? 
it started with my forensic fellowship was in Miami. And if you look at Florida and Texas, their issue with the death penalty back in the 80s and 90s, they were just putting so many people to death. And um, the last great riot they had in Miami um, was January 17, 1989. That was my mother's birthday. Mm. But that was the day a young man was shot in the back of the head by police. He was black. The body was sent to the office as a traffic accident and was almost processed as an accident. When I happened to wander over to the table, it was not my case. But I said, you know, there's a hole in this motorcycle helmet. Why? It's not a crack, it's a hole. Let's x-ray the body and there was a bullet. Wow. That was a young man who was killed by a sharpshooter who stood in the street, took his time, aimed and shot in the back of the head. So that became a homicide. That was a death that could have been prevented. There was an intent to cover it up. And had the we not been diligent, that may have gone down as an accident. Not only was I just penetrated with anger and grief, I, I watched Overtown, portion of Miami that's historically Black in Liberty City, burn and the riots. And then I was transported for that next week back and forth to work by the state police. I was impacted so heavily by that. I wrote an article published in the NMA journal called The Shame of Miami. And I spoke out about what was happening. I was witnessing how black people were treated differently from refugee Cubans. And where there were so many deaths in custody. I, I just could not keep quiet about it. And bringing in a young black male who was shot, obviously killed after having a quote unquote altercation with the handcuffs still on. And the behavior was something I was just never, ever going to tolerate. So it started in my fellowship. That story, you know, resonates so much even today to talk because it, it illustrates the importance of independent, objective forensic pathology. Um, in May 2020, the world watched George Floyd was killed with a knee on his neck. What did you, you know, now taking you from your fellowship where you saw a case of an individual that was coming in as an accident and then without your intervention, without your, your focus, it may have gone out as an accident, even though there was a bullet in this man's head. What did you think about the case of George Floyd? That was another death, as you know, Dr. Roger. Um, death investigation for me is spiritual. I am blessed to be the last doctor laying hands on somebody. And I want it done right. And 
when after going through decades of these types of cases and then to see this death um, on video replayed over and over again, it was like being stabbed in your heart as a cultural mother over and over again. And we know what happens when you do not get air. We know physiologically what happens when you cannot move your diaphragm or expand your rib cage, use your back muscles. And then to hear somebody say, well, gee, we think it might've been excited delirium. It, it is, it's that ball of confusion. Is this going to end? What was helpful to me was to know that by this time, there was more than one well-trained black forensic pathologist stand up say, no, that is not what happened. This man was murdered. He was murdered on video. This is not going to be swept under a rug. You've been a medical examiner over errors, you know, over time. Um, you said 40 years. How do you think the advent of cell phone and body-worn camera video, how do you think that that has changed forensic death investigation in these types of cases? It has been a tremendous advance to have these images captured on phone and under video. You know, years ago when I wrote my first book, I always said, take your ID card with you. Now I say, don't leave home without your phone. Even now, if I see someone stopped on the road and they're police, I stop and I want to make sure that they are all right and I have my phone. It is our greatest weapon because we can put that out to show how we as people are being mistreated, how we're being killed under the guise of altercation, um, how we are not and our loved ones are not being recognized for any mental health crisis that they're having, or even a natural health crisis. And that sometimes when I review these cases, even today, I hear someone muttering in the background, I think it's excited delirium. And it just makes my head go just a little, <laughs> just, just a little out there. So the, the phone is tremendous. Now you talked a little bit about excited, you said excited delirium a couple times. Um, can you explain what that to our listeners, what excited delirium is or what it isn't? Thank you so much. <laughs> excited delirium is a total misnomer and a debunked theory. And I speak with authority when I say that. I did an external rotation in Miami, Florida at the Dade County Medical Examiner's Office, 1986 prior to me doing my fellowship in 1988. Um, Dr. Charles Wetley was the deputy chief medical examiner at that time. He is one of the originators of the term excited delirium. It was really based upon racial characteristics, racism at its worst, and it had no scientific background at all. And because he was using this term, they overlooked the serial murders of over 30 black women 
over two years. That began in 85, and that issue was solved while I was a forensic fellow. Dr. Wetley based excited delirium as a way that people of color metabolize cocaine, and it was unusual, and it was the male of the species that caused the death of the female who had sexual relationship with the male. One, as if we as a species are a subspecies and not human. Two, no scientific backing. This term began to be used as a cover-up, in my opinion, for deaths in custody under all kinds of unusual circumstances. That was Dr. Charles Wetley's legacy, and that has been carried forth from that time, even though it was debunked, had been carried forth, and it still exists today. And even though we've tried to work to get it out, they change a little bit of the term, and they still have that nuance that people of color are, will have superhuman strength and will attack you first. And we have to get back to that training of law enforcement that this is a term that should not be used at all. No, that 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 is um, not only your opinion, but the opinion of the American Medical Association, the National Medical Association, the um, the uh, American Psychiatric Association, the Physicians for uh, Human Rights. Um, also all have come out um, against and even just uh, just not too long ago, the National Association of Medical Examiners have backed away from the use of excited delirium as a cause of death diagnosis. Um, we, we talk about excited delirium and, and you talked about the manners of death. You know, briefly you said, you know, he is he the the young man that was shot in the head came in as an accident, but it, it should have been designated as a, as a homicide, as a homicide. Can you talk a little bit about the five manners of death for our listeners? And um, can you explain what manner of death is? Manner of death is an opinion made by a um, medical professional, generally trained in the specialty of forensic pathologist as to how someone's death came to be. We have the five, five manners of natural, from natural disease, accidents from some untoward activity. Um, we have suicide, the taking of one's own life by their action. We have undetermined, where we, after a thorough investigation, have not been able to conclude as to what happened. And um, am I missing one? Homicide, suicide. Suicide. Accident, accident natural. Natural and, and undetermined. That's right. Yeah. Those are the five. Dr. Carter, one of the things that we see in our work, and I'm sure that you've seen many times, is that determinations of an undetermined or accidental manner of death are often used in cases of uh, physical altercations within law enforcement, with law enforcement, and sometimes in prisons or jails as well. Can you discuss the implications of those two manners of death 
and what they might uh, cover up or uh, make more difficult to determine? Well, when someone uses the opinion that it's an accidental death, they're saying that it couldn't have been avoided. When they say it's undetermined, they're saying everything's wrapped up and there's nothing more to be learned. But it's very important to distinguish who is making that determination. As Dr. Roger will say, we have two systems of death investigation in this country. We have medical examiners and we have coroners. And I'm from a coroner system. That's what introduced me to forensics. But we have to make sure that our coroners understand the importance of their opinion as to manner of death. And coroners by law don't perform the autopsy, but they certify that death. And I've been on that bandwagon for a while. So when you are saying accident, it's nobody's fault. Uh, undetermined. We just have no idea. And most of the times they haven't done a really thorough investigation. And so we have to keep that in mind. When you're saying homicide, somebody or someone's have caused this person's death. So we need to be very clear that you're not just falling down and falling out when you have a death in custody. Someone has their hands on you. Someone has prevented your normal bodily function from occurring. Someone is ignoring your history or your presentation. So I think it's very important that while we have medical folk coming over and saying, hey, excited delirium is not a good term, we still have to train and get to the coroners, the judges, the ship's captains, the airplane captains, and wardens who also certify death. Can you give us an example of a, a case that you've been involved in in which the opinion that the uh, the, the person uh, determining the manner of death maybe has used the accidental or undetermined uh, manner to prevent additional uh, investigation or to make it more difficult to um, uh, to hold the person who may have caused that death accountable? Oh, certainly. I, I just finished a stint of working five years in, in California. In California, by law, the coroners are the elected sheriffs. Other than major cities like L.A., Oakland, um, the coroner or sheriff completes the death certificate. So if you don't have a strong forensic pathologist who's hired by them to say, hey, wait a minute, this is not an accident. That doctor may never even see the death certificate until they're called to court to testify because it's hidden from them. And so that is a problem that occurs in, in California. In the Midwest, where I'm from, the coroners are civilians in uh, Indiana, and you need not any training at all to be elected as coroner, and yet your responsibilities are so grave. Um, so you have to look at that system. And yes, I've seen cases where they either chose not to understand the um, harm of using terms that don't make any sense 
to the scene itself and circumstances, and you have to be able to call them out and have <clears throat> that much intestinal strength to say, hey, this is a homicide. But if you're not strong enough, these cases get pushed through. And as Dr. Roger knows, they don't always check off the box mm-hmm. that this was a death in custody. So we have to be aware and searching and looking. And that can be very, very difficult in many of these cases. You know, it's interesting that you bring up the distinction between the sheriff coroner system and, and the coroner system and the medical examiner system. But what has brought to light some of the discordance we saw with the George Floyd case is neither a coroner, sheriff coroner, but it was a medical examiner. Medical examiner got on the stand and said that that death in custody was undetermined. And one of the reasons why he suggested that that death in custody was undetermined was because the face of George Floyd was near the tailpipe of the cruiser. And there could have been a possibility of carbon monoxide poisoning. So he called the case undetermined. Talk a little bit about your reaction to when you heard uh, the, the, the notion that uh, the George Floyd case or the death and murder of George Floyd could have been, was, was being proffered as an undetermined uh, manner of death. It was infuriating to hear that testimony. And then also to learn that that term of excited delirium had also been tossed around prior to the examination being completed. And, you know, I said to myself, this is why we need to have more diversity, more minority forensic pathologists in every area of this country so that these cases are done correctly. It just so happens we had more, but it was so infuriating to sit and listen to testimony. During that same testimony, I heard somebody say, we couldn't tell if Mr. Floyd was bruised because of his skin pigmentation. And it almost sent me through the television screen. So we still have a lot of work to do. Death in custody is on a continuum. We've talked about how it begins in the pre-arrest phase and continues through incarceration. Uh, You've obviously been involved in the review of some very high-profile deaths in custody, uh, including the case of Sandra Bland. If if you feel comfortable talking to us about it, can you tell us just a little bit about how you became involved in the case and uh, what you did for the family? And if you just want to provide any additional reflections on that case, um, it plays a, a massive role in our book. And we actually use that case to talk about the criminal legal system more broadly and all of the ways uh, that it has the potential to harm people and also things that we can do to prevent that harm if we want to. Um, Certainly. I became involved in the case of um, the investigation of Sandra Bland because previously I had spent about 18 years doing cases for the NAACP on the local level where families just didn't know what to do when they had a death in custody. And many times it was almost at that ninth hour and court was going on. So I I had that history of explaining these cases and there were so many of them. And the attorney contacted me from Chicago. I had done a case there where a woman died in jail who had not been given medical treatment 
after admitting she swallowed drugs. So when I heard about this case, I, I just wanted to help in some small way. So I flew down to um, Houston and we did a second autopsy on that case. I got all the available information, be able to view the site, the jail, um, the laboratory, and also the original autopsy that had been done at Harris County. I even went to the um, Harris County Medical Examiner's Office to look at the tissue that had been retained and the original x-rays. So I had opportunity to look at what had and had not been done, in my opinion, and also the circumstances of death, uh, the history of this jail, um, astonishing, and was able to relay to the attorney and the family members what had happened. Very important about that case were the circumstances leading up to it, the altercation. The law enforcement officer, in my opinion, just immediately went to a level 10 of reaction and the physical altercation took place. It wasn't well documented, but I found extensive bruising <laughs> on the back of Miss Bland, deep knee into the back, very painful, bilateral to the bone. Mm -hmm. And that was very important in establishing that this was an altercation. Uh, a very harsh altercation prior to her being left alone over a weekend in a jail cell with information not even being passed to the jailers that were on the weekend staff. So there are so many issues that needed to be looked at for that case. Thank you. So on the podcast, we discuss, you know, and in our book, uh, Dr. Carter, the paucity of data collected on death in custody. Mm -hmm. How important is it to you that the United States collect accurate data on those who die in the custody of the criminal legal system? It is extremely important. You know, medical examiners and coroners already have a ton of data that is useful in establishing traffic patterns, um, mm -hmm. uh, funding highways, funding nursing schools, medical schools, so on and so forth. To get to the root of the problem, we have to have the data. We have to know when people are dying in custody so that as soon as possible, we can make sure that someone's held accountable. We can't let these cases fade into the night. You know, they did a study in California when I was there, and they just showed the number of people of color who were stopped by the police during the day because they could see them. Mm -hmm. And that was eye-opening. So we have to see these cases that are happening in these small towns that are not getting to the media, that family doesn't know how to get someone to help them. They're, we're looking at the tip of the iceberg. As you know, um, there are so many of these cases in small towns and they're not being documented. That's the only way to attack this problem. Hard numbers. And that statement, you, you spoke of um, the criminal legal implications of not collecting data. Talk a little bit about this issue from a public health standpoint and what we may be missing 
from a public health standpoint across the continuum from pre-arrest all the way through incarceration. What we're missing from a public health standpoint is the longevity or shortened longevity of people of color. Not only um, do we not have the same access to health care, we don't have the same access to fairness in the legal system. And if people um, that we are paying from our tax dollars to protect and serve are killing other people, um, and they are continuing to do that until it becomes so blatant, um, that is affecting our health. That's affecting our mental health. That's affecting the survival of our families. That's affecting um, how we actually exist in this country. And it's still covering up racism, racism. I wanted to jump in here and actually ask both of you a question. And I don't know how much you're going to want to talk about it, but but I want to ask it because I feel like I need to. Uh, the, the National Association of Medical Examiners is a an organization that uh, you both have been very involved in at, at different points in your life. But you also have both left that organization um, because of this issue of systemic racism. And, and what I think is a perception on both of your parts that the organization hasn't done enough to address racism within the medical examiner community and the broader society we live in. I just wanted either or both of you, or you can have a conversation about it, to talk a little bit about why you left uh, and and where your current status is with that organization. Well, I'll, I'll jump right in there. Um, when I joined the National Association of Medical Examiners through my mentor, the late Dr. Joe Davis, it was a completely different organization. Mm. Um, there was camaraderie, there was acceptance, there was discussion, there was openness. And over the years, the organization changed to become more of the policing, more of the certification. And for a very long time, I felt like I was um, just there, uh, tolerated, not welcomed. And I've always made it a point to speak up and speak my mind. That's how things get changed. But you can only imagine being uh, the black chief medical examiner and speaking up against things that were just wrong, um, taking tissue from black bodies when the family hadn't had a chance to say anything, the old medical examiner coroner law that they passed, um, speaking out about deaths in custody, speaking out about comments like, I can't tell if they're injured because they have dark skin. Um, there was no push to change. There was no push to have people of color on any administrative level. And then um, after the debacle of George Floyd, when uh, National Association of Medical Examiners wrote that ridiculous press release, um, being suspect of a second autopsy and getting called out for it, I, I couldn't see what I could do within that organization, within that framework. And so I left the organization um, and, and I'm not a member of it. 
And I just wish that there continue to be an influx of more young Black forensic pathologists to make mm-hmm. sure that diversity continues in this group. So, yeah, you know, Dr. Dr. Carter, you know, I stand on your shoulders um, and, you know, I really enjoyed the National Association of Medical Examiners, you know, and I um, joined that organization right after I left fellowship. Um, You know, my fellowship, the head of the office of the chief medical examiner in New York City was not a big fan of the National Association of Medical Examiners. So we weren't as fellows encouraged to become members. Um, But when I left and became an attending in Houston, uh, in Harris County, again, following in your footsteps, I, um, I, I immediately became a member of name and was welcomed, felt good, um, was uh, part of the inspection and accreditation committee, became the chair of the strategic um, committee, uh, the committee on strategy and was, um, was, was, was welcomed. Um, there was a, a listserv uh, that that was carried out by the National Association of Medical Examiners that because of my, you know, career trajectory as assistant deputy chief medical examiner in Houston and running all death investigations there, and then shortly after that becoming chief medical examiner in New Jersey and then chief medical examiner in Washington, D.C., I didn't really have a lot of time to spend on a listserv, um, especially a listserv that really wasn't, forensic pathology based. It was a lot of opinions and social commentary, uh, Jay. And that social commentary Mm -hmm. was, was often offensive, um, Mm -hmm. offensive to women, offensive to minorities. Um, And so you, you, you know, it was, it was like anything else. You're, we're free. We don't have to listen. You turn Mm -hmm. it off. Um, The one thing that the National Association of Medical Examiners was open to is that I, I reached out um, to uh, the president at the time, um, and I'm forgetting his name. It was um, in 27, 2016, 2015, 2016. And I said, hey, it's, there's been another killing in, uh, in custody. Um, I want to start an ad hoc committee on death in custody. Um, and... And it was received. They said, you know, I'm the president. I have the ability to start an ad hoc committee on death and custody. What are you going to do with that? I said, well, I think we should come up with, you know, guidelines or suggestions on how death and custody should be investigated, should be autopsied, should be reported. Um, I think we should come up with a, a position statement by the National Association of Medical Examiners on the forensic side of death and custody, not the political social side, um, because I knew that organization would never do that. It, it, it had always a, a, an opinion that, hey, if you, if you say your opinion about how things happen, you can be seen as bias. Um, and, and that was really how they proffered and how they, how much of the organization and much of the profession stops individuals from being vocal about injustice or vocal about healthcare related issues, not as much about healthcare. If you're a forensic pathologist and you don't believe in cancer, there's not many people that are going to have a problem with you. 
But if you're if you're a, a forensic pathologist and then have it has an issue with law enforcement that and, and how the criminal legal system treats certain people, the poor and the disenfranchised, then you may get a little pushback. So and, and that's not just from the organization. That's the discipline of forensic pathology. So the organization gave me room. Right. So we got to be I have to applaud the organization. It gave me room to assemble a group of a national group of individuals uh, from all over the country to opine as to how we what is the position of the National Association of Medical Examiners on how we handle death in custody cases as a as a way for younger forensic pathologists and older to have a uniformity of practice. And so we did that. We did that in 2017. And it it you know it went through several adjustments and it became the position of the National Association of Medical Examiner. Uh, there are several things that didn't necessarily make it to the position statement, um, one of which is conversations about manner of death and when to use homicide and when to use accident and when to use undetermined. That didn't make it to the position statement, right? And so it was a position statement and it was approved in 2017 and then was just – and. Um, let me strike that and was approved again in 2021 after after 2022 after 5 years and th and so every 5 years a position statement if it's relevant gets reapproved so in uh today it is an approved statement on how to handle death and custody and I, amongst several, were the original authors, and I was the convener of that authorship. Now, the reason why I left is because the a past president was a expert witness on behalf of Chauvin in the George Floyd trial that proffered an opinion that George Floyd's death was undetermined in part because his face was near a tailpipe from a cruiser. And he was, he used to be the president of that organization. And he was representing a group of forensic pathologists that reviewed that case together <laughs> And several individuals of that group of forensic pathologists were also past presidents of the National Association of Medical Examiners. And so at that point, I wrote a letter along with a, 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 a handful of other individuals that have remained um, uh, silent, right, on purpose. Um, they've made a choice. I said I was going to be the person that says I wrote the letter, but there was about a handful of us that wrote the original letter to the attorney general in Maryland that said, mm -hmm. hey, listen, if this medical examiner is suggesting that George Floyd is undetermined for the reasons he did, then what are the other cases that he's suggesting should be undetermined in an accident during the time, 17 years that he was the chief medical examiner in Baltimore, Maryland. And, and today there is a current audit underway looking at the, the 117 cases out of the 1,000 cases plus 
that um, have question that are questionable. Uh, and so I knew once I once that testimony happened and I was felt it necessary to write that letter to mm-hmm. upside the apple cart, then there, there, there was no room for me at mm-hmm. the National Association of Medical Examiners. Now, I teach residents and I teach at Howard University. I do not disparage the National Association of Medical Examiners, right? I think it's a good organization for those young forensic pathologists that want to go into and, and get camaraderie and understand, um, understanding that that organization has the issues of institutional racism like many other majority organizations. And those that don't feel comfortable or want to be part of a pathology group that also does forensic pathology, we're involved in the National Medical Association which is the oldest and largest group of black physicians in the country. And we have a very strong and um, robust pathology section where we welcome both general pathology, surgical pathology, anatomic pathology, and forensic and autopsy pathology. So thank you for that question, Jay. I haven't spoken in public about why I've left the National Association of Medical Examiners. And I think this is probably the best place to, to, to answer that question. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Carter. My pleasure. I'm a huge fan of you and your work, and it's great to, to meet you. Um, I know that, that you've had a massive impact on Roger and his work. Um, I assume you know that, but if you don't, you have. <laughs> well, thank you. I look forward to the book. I'm always proud of, of Roger. He is putting it out there, and he's a beacon for young doctors to emulate and our job has all been to pull people up up the ladder, help them mm-hmm. get to that level, increase the diversity and increase the truth. So I'm looking forward mm-hmm. to the book. And thank you for doing this podcast. It's going to be very helpful. There's there's no repayment. I told Brendan we're gonna we're gonna gush over you a little bit more, um, uh, Dr. Carter. <laughs> uh, you know, I told Brendan yesterday is that you know you are the only black medical examiner that answered the phone. You know, and it was every, every and, time. And, and, then I, and then I said, and did it every and time, every time, every single time, <laughs> every single time you answered the phone. And, um, you know, there's something to be said about that. Right. There's something to be said about when you answer the phone every time. The one thing that I always said, I might be the first, but I will not be the last. No, and that's how no. we keep it going. What what you poured into me, I'm pouring into others. Um, That's the way we do it. So I appreciate you. You are now listening to the sounds of official ignorance.